Hey, Matt. Hey, Mike. Hey, Richard. Hey, Mike. Hey, Richard. Hey, Matt. <laughs> Would you all like to do a podcast? Yeah. Sure. Let's do it. Welcome back to Hacking the Grepson where we are still joined by our special guest, Richard, and Matt is also here with me. We're now talking about uh, day 17 and beyond of the Advent of Code 2023, and uh, I think we should just jump right back into it. Um, Matt, would you like to take day 17? Boy, would I. Uh. I don't know how to interpret that. (laughs) Tone, but okay. Uh, I don't either. I, I'm not. I'm not even sure if I was being sarcastic. Um, this one was called "Clumsy Crucible," uh, and so uh, yeah. And so we had these crucibles full of lava, um, if I remember correctly, and we had to push them uh, so that they could, uh, so that we could get them to where they needed to be. But they couldn't travel in a straight line for very long because they're clumsy steering issues hence the clumsy (laughs) so we had to figure out how to get the crucible from the lava pool to the machine parts factory in as few as steps possible so that we would minimize heat loss while choosing a route that doesn't require the crucible to go in a straight line for too long um and then you get a map and it talks about like the ambient temperature which so that helps you figure out i think the heat loss and all that other fun stuff um each city yeah each block uh represents the amount of heat loss if the crucible enters that block uh i did not get this one um i i didn't even attempt it on day 17 but i did try it afterwards uh day 17 i had vacation things to do um so this one uh, i wrote time to dig out dijkstra's algorithm uh or better yet a star or maybe dynamic programming uh finding shortest path to each node in a breadth first search way from the starting point and I was like, I should write uh, a generic node and edge class because that would come in real handy because there's always graph problems. And I didn't do anything else on it. <laughs> I, we're going to turn this one over to Richard, obviously. But uh, yeah, all I wrote was, this seems like it needs a maze-solving algorithm. Uh, based on previous years, based on previous days, even in this year, uh, this seemed like a pretty... Th- this seems like a, a, a puzzle we've seen before in 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 some form like this, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't even attempt it. I, I'm not even sure what the best way to go about it is. So, Richard, how did you end up working yeah, on it? Yeah, so this does end up being sort of a typical maze-solving, well, uh, cost-pathfinding pathfinding. algorithm yeah. one <laughs> mm. where the major wrinkle is that after three uh, in a row you can't go the same direction anymore. So you have to at least uh, in your... So in a typical pathfinding thing, you keep track of like the nodes that you've visited and to, to not visit them again. But in this particular case, the, the fact that it can only go three before having to turn means that uh, you have to incorporate like what the last three nodes that you went to are in your determination on if you have visited this node or not. It's not enough to just go and use the coordinates. And um, so when I go and I, I get my options, I have to, I, I, ha, I, I also I kept, 
kept a, a list of instructions that had that when followed gets your path so far and I take the last three of those and that determines the options that I have for the next one and then for my explored I also go and chop off the last three instructions and stick it in with the coordinates for determining whether or not that has been explored and um this is actually I had exactly the same problem on this one as before uh, in that uh, I was not uh, – oh, no, this one was a, a different stupid pr- uh, problem where um, when I was saving whether or not I had explored something, I actually was saving the information about the uh, node that I had explored previously instead of the node that I was currently exploring, and thus all of my uh, all of my determinations on whether the – I could go and explore this node were wrong after a certain amount. Um, and so it took me a very long time to realize that, no, I actually want to save whether this node and all of its relevant information have been explored, not the one that uh, that led to exploring this node. So it's, it's kind of like an off-by-one error, I guess. <laughs> part two, what, what was the twist? For, for part okay, two, the twist was... <laughs> It wasn't actually that bad. So instead of having a crucible, you have an ultra crucible. And um, basically, (laughs) it has to go at least four blocks before it can turn. And then uh, in addition to that, it can't go longer than 10 blocks without turning. And so that meant that when determining my options, I then had to keep track of like the last 10 instructions or whatever. But luckily, there were fewer branching points because it had to go at least four. Oh, and the other fun thing about this one is you had to, if you were, you know how it was um, at least four without turning, it was also at least four without stopping. So... That means that if you were heading towards the exit and you had been going for two in that direction, you could not stop at the exit. So that did not count as a solution. Oh, uh, you can over. Yeah, you can overshoot. It. And that did not count. Um, but it was the wow. algorithm like was effectively the same. Um, and so it actually wasn't that bad. But it did take longer to run. Are we talking like seconds or minutes? <laughs> we're, we're talking like a few minutes or a couple of minutes, at least for my solution. But part oh, one was, okay. yeah, it was, it was, it basically took two or three times what part one took, I think, unless I made an optimization that I don't remember. I mean, I, I always assume that like the ideal solution to any of these puzzles uh, should be, you know, within a second. Yeah, there's or probably so. something and, and I was doing. And if it's not, wrong. then <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, I was I went back and read through like the the Slack threads on uh, for my work mm-hmm. um, channel that talks about Advent of Code, and there were people like trying to get it under like, oh, I, you know, I, I got this under a certain number of microseconds, I got this under a certain number of nanoseconds. I'm like, I didn't get this. Uh, you guys are <laughs> nuts. <laughs> Optimization is my least favorite part of programming. <laughs> I'm like, here's how to do the problem in general. Uh, make it better? Sure. It's roughly like this, but I don't want to do it. It's not fun. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, there's always somebody who's doing it better, right? Seems that way. Yeah. Good. And, you know, we need different types yeah. of people. Right. And, uh, and you know, that's uh, that's uh, an opportunity to that's improve. That's the real lesson. 
that's the real lesson of Advent of Code is we need different types of people. Yeah, it's it's the people we met along the way. That was the real exactly. That's the it's real the elves Advent of we code. helped along yeah. the way. <laughs> right. It's always about we're just we're just trying to help Santa. That's all. That's the whole point of this. Okay, so I will take. Actually, no, I don't want to take eighteen. I want to take nineteen because I actually got part one. So Richard, why don't you take us into day eighteen? Oh, day 18. This is one where I did not solve both parts. <gasps> um, okay. Day. Oh, this one. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> the, you're supposed to go. G- 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 give us yeah, the. the, this yeah, is the lava duct lagoon. Um, the elves want to go yeah. and essentially dig a hole, and you're given input where part of it is how many. Uh, to, to where, What direction you're supposed to move and how many. Uh, units you're supposed to move in that direction and it essentially goes and it makes a perimeter and then you are supposed to tell it how big of an area got filled within that perimeter and then there's also a little hash what they called a color value but part two um, says differently um, that you can essentially ignore for now for now (laughs) And this works very similarly to, at least part one works very similarly to the problem that I believe that you guys discussed in the previous episode. Was it day 10? Yes. Where you have to go and, uh, the yeah, pipe maze, and yeah. tell it how much stuff is surrounded. And originally mm-hmm. I wanted to do it in a different direction. Uh, so the way that I did part uh, number 10 um was I took the route that got traversed and I used the previous node, uh, current node, and next node in the path to find what is right of that node. Um, And so after finding everything that is on the right side of the path, I then flood-filled the rest of the interior and um, I didn't want to do it that way because it, it was seemed like I should be able to just go and use another common geometry thing where if you have um, a shape um, and you want to determine whether you're on the interior or exterior of the shape, you should be able to just go and pick a ray and to count the number of uh, edges that you pass through. Um, yeah. With the odd being your inside and even being outside. Uh, Unfortunately, Mm. for this particular case, because of the way that fun ASCII and integer numbers work, you could go and run into a giant wall um, where you you you're flipped opposite of what you're actually supposed to be, and it is annoyingly difficult to detect these situations. Um, one of the cases where if I had just converted it to pure math, it probably would have worked out, but the way that I was counting the inside and outside did not work out. Yeah, I had a similar problem on that front. Yeah, the first thing I did with this one was I, I, I changed my visualization class so it could support RGB colors. I was like, ooh, cool, different colors. This will <laughs> be so useful. Um, <laughs> part two description for why that wasn't true. Um <laughs> Part one seemed fairly straightforward, although as I wrote in my notes, uh, didn't use the colors, so now part two concerns <laughs> me. <laughs> um, I reused a bunch of my code from day 16 on this, 
um, and I realized I needed to make my grid tile and grid classes more generic uh, if I had time, but I didn't. And then, yeah, had the same problem as day 10 with figuring inside, outside. That I ran into the same problem as you did. If you ran into a wall, if you were running yeah. along a wall, uh, it didn't work properly. If you were on an empty spot inside, it didn't. you didn't really have a problem. But if you were on an empty spot outside and you went towards the grid it just it didn't work um uh but i did manage to get it working but for some reason something i ran into here this is again where i really need to get my brain around using a profiler for python just so i know how to do it more easily is um it was really really slow when i was cleaning up my list of tiles that i wanted to look at so i would i would as i was uh investigating whether where I, whether i was inside or outside by basically starting at a tile and growing until I hit either the edge of the tile or the edge of my, uh, or hit a wall, um, I would build up a map of, of tiles. And for some reason, cleaning up that list of tiles just was taking forever. Uh, and ultimately, I ended up switching to a filter from list comprehension for cleaning that up, and that made it a little bit faster, but yeah. Uh, you want to talk to us about yeah, part two? Part two. <laughs> part two is big number time again. So... All right. It turns out that those were not colors after all, but it's too late. We we now those are actually encoded versions of really big amounts of distances that you need to travel to make your perimeter. Mm. And um, mm-hmm. this results in anything where you actually go and count interior tiles being far too slow. And um, I did end up coming up with an algorithm to do this but i did not implement the algorithm and the algorithm essentially was to decompose all of the um, distances traveled into into line segments and then sort the horizontal line segments by y sort the vertical line segments by x take the top horizontal line segment and the one below it and then start with the leftmost vertical line segment that intersects it and the next one over that also intersects that um and then you have a box from the box you can calculate the area and then you move over to the next vertical segment um you you actually have to sort of skip over because you go interior then exterior then interior again um and then calculate that box and then after you've gone through all of those uh vertical segments you drop down one uh, line, your top becomes your bottom, or vice versa, uh, What and work your way down calculating the area of all these boxes. But I never actually implemented this algorithm, and I just assume that it will work. <laughs> I don't know what I did for part two, because it looks like I attempted it, and then I put it in, in, an, in an assert near the top of my code that said, this will not finish for the heat death of the universe. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best and assert I never there went is. back to it. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. I, I never bothered to solve part two. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks like uh, Richard, uh, even you, did not get part two. So uh, I guess we're all kind of a uh, hmm on this one. <laughs> It'll suck. Uh, yeah, that was a uh, that that was one that. Oh, so the, the only thing I wanted to add is that yeah, I I had never tried to code a flood fill algorithm before, so I just found one and translated it to Ruby. Uh, I don't know what it was in originally. Um, probably JavaScript or something, and. Uh, I was like, you know, it's funny because I totally worked on a web app that's a painting, like a pixel art painting program. 
And I'm pretty sure I tried to implement a bucket fill tool, which would have required knowing about flood fill. So I feel like maybe I already tried to do this at one point and uh, completely forgot about it until just now. Uh, but the, the, my implementation did not do the flood fill properly. It, w- it, would, uh, it would start in a spot and it would fill like all the way vertically and partially of the way horizontally and then just stop with like a big wall and then it wouldn't it wouldn't keep going even though you know I, I had a visualization of what it was doing so I could see where it was just stopping I'm like why aren't you going and I just never got around to f- debugging it so uh I don't know that's as far as I got on this one um but day 19 we're we're getting towards the home stretch of uh, Advent of Code, um, but still, it's that doesn't mean it's getting easier. Although this one, I would say, since I actually got part one of this, was easier, at least uh, in my uh, opinion. Uh, this is called A Plenty, and it looks like there's a bunch of presents, or sorry, machine parts. Yeah, you're reaching, uh, and each part has different categories, which are uh, Christmas-themed as an X, extremely cool looking, M, musical, A, aerodynamic, and S, shiny. Ha ha ha. And then you send each of these parts through a series of workflows, uh, which, you know, is just like a one-line string of a bunch of encoding things. And so you're basically running through a bunch of instructions, and you have a bunch of parts, and you want to figure out, like, what happens to the part at the end after it's gone through all the instructions. And they each have rating numbers. Each part has a essentially a number connected to it, and you add up all the part all the rating number parts um this was for me my my first note on this was uh, parsimonious and i remember talking to richard online about this because that's that's really what it was it was just can you parse all of these rules accurately and there was not there wasn't really a gotcha that i could find except just can you follow these somewhat obtuse instructions in code and so i was able to do it somehow and uh, yeah, I got a couple classes, workflow and part, I think, were all I needed. Um, so, I mean, I got through part one pretty easily. Let's see. Part two, let me remind myself what it was. Um, ah, yes. Another kind of big number Well, part two where... Sort of. Or maybe not. I don't know. But, but I didn't get it, and I don't even think I really attempted it. So what about you guys? Uh, I did not attempt part two, but part one, uh, I'll agree, yeah, it was fairly straightforward to parse, and I thought the logic was was clear. Mm. Um, I made a couple of classes, one called rule and one called workflow. I probably should have added a third one called, like, program or something to run the whole thing uh, if I really wanted to be object-oriented, <laughs> but I, I just hard-coded that part in solution one function. Yeah, that's your main. For actually uh, executing the commands, I ended up building lambdas. Using the eval, using eval statements um, <gasps> to actually figure out like if it's less than, if it's greater than, if it, because the way that the logic worked, it was like if a is less than this number and m is greater than that number and this and and that, accept it or reject it and all those kind of fun things. Little, um, little, and so little I, did, uh, you know, but there was an injection attack in his data, and your eval has now uh, corrupted all of your computers. <laughs> Oh no, my computer's compromised. See, I use regex. I, I was so. actually worried about that, but I, my 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 parsing was such that it wouldn't have been possible for that to be the case, because I I was explicitly like it would only parse if it was uh, those specific uh, 
characters because I normally you yeah. don't want to use evals. Yeah, I'm like, okay, it's safe enough. Take that little um, bobby tables. And then, <laughs> yeah, and then yeah, <laughs> and then part two. I I didn't attempt. I don't know. Um, I I I never even had a chance to try it, so I, I don't know if it would be hard or not. So for part one, I had a thing that went and just was like a process part, and I did not decide to use an eval. Um, but I did essentially do, it was essentially a, a recursive function that went all the way through the, the workflow for a particular part and ended the, the base case was if it, the workflow was in reject or accept. Um, then part two was, okay, now you have, now that you know how to do it for an individual part solve the generic case of any part that can have an evaluation for each of the letters in the range between, uh, I think it's one, one and 4,000 inclusive, I believe. Um, Uh And so for any particular evaluation, you need to determine, uh, sorry, you need to determine how many total possible ways there are of having your part be accepted for like any particular rating. And what I ended up doing was uh, I had a function that I called get new ranges and you put in what the current ranges were start. So starting off with all of the uh, XMS um, values being from one to 4,000 and then if it ran into a uh, place where some of them would go to a different part of the workflow, it split it into a different set of ranges. So it would return um, the split set of ranges. And eventually you uh, end up with a whole bunch of different subranges for each of the different uh, letters and you go and you multiply them all together for that particular subset. And then you add all of the accepted uh, ranges together to get how many total combinations there are. Um, And we are very lucky that the workflow is directed and short. Um, Otherwise (laughs) this would be a very big memory problem. I'm sure. Yeah, that's your solution sounds a little bit like day five with the interval ranges um, and trying to match things there. Because I did something similar, I think, on that day where I was splitting up my in part two, where I was splitting up my really long ranges into intervals and being able to do comparisons of like, do these overlap? Uh, Sounds sounds somewhat similar to that. I may have to go back and actually try this uh, part two at some point. Yeah, I think this one is reasonably doable. Seems interesting. Especially since like you don't end up especially since the workflows end up being relatively short cool yeah i'll have to go back and try that one yeah cool uh yeah i i (laughs) i can't say that i quite crock that one yet but uh but i'm glad someone did (laughs) so day 20 i'll take day 20 since it's the last one i actually got any stars on propagate that pulse matt (laughs) all right uh day 20 is yeah we have a pulse propagation is the name of the name of the game here and uh, effectively we've got a list of, um, or or a mapping, I guess, of modules and 
different types of modules do different things. It's got a bit of a like a logic gate type uh, element to it where you can invert things or you might uh, add them together. But ultimately, it's just starting at button and which kicks which sends a low pulse over to broadcaster and then broadcaster will send out its low pulse to other places and then you're trying to get all that until you get to some different stopping condition um and i think in part one it was what do you get if you multiply the total number of low pulses sent by the total number of high pulses sent uh after pushing the button a thousand times um so that all made tons of sense, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> it was a complicated uh, class itself. I ended up writing, or uh, this problem itself, um, I ended up writing several classes. I actually ended up making an abstract class, which I never do, because I don't like them. Um, uh, Matt, can you... I, I don't like writing them in Python. Can, can, yeah, explain <laughs> what you mean by an abstract class. Abstract class is basically a base class, right? Like where you're you're defining the interface in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and like what modules are going to be in there, but where at least one method has not been defined. Mm-hmm. So for me, my pulse meth module had uh, they all had a fairly consistent set of fields, I guess, <laughs> for that they could sort of like name and pulse type and state, and then um, they had a I had a hash so that I could represent them. Um, but then the I had an abstract method around the receive function. So when a module receives, or, or when a type of module receives a pulse, um, how it reacts depends on the type of module. So then I had I, I created subclasses of that that implement receive um, that has terminal module, which is the one that ends, and you don't get any new modules to go visit. You got button module, which sends a single low pulse in the uh, directly to. The broadcaster module, the broadcaster module, which uh, sends the same pulse to all of its destination modules, and then the two like main modules that we have uh, throughout are the flip flop module, which if you got a high pulse, it does nothing. If you got a low pulse, it turns it into a high pulse, but also I think it flips itself into a certain into a different state. And then the conjunction module, which is just an and, basically, and it. Uh, had to do it once every single input had received i think a high pulse then it would send out a pulse it was weird um i didn't have too much trouble with the first part of this one um i created it i made my classes i and then i just sort of ran it and it worked um i didn't i don't know that i even tried oh no i tried part two but i did not get there because it was a uh, bigger problem to deal with. <laughs> Richard, um, how about you? Yeah, for part one, it was, I mean, essentially just following the instructions and following them in order. For part two, like where you had to go and determine how many times the, the but- broadcaster button is pushed before a particular node uh, receives, or I, I think it's receives, a uh, low pulse. Um, that was hard, and I did not answer it. Um, because you essentially, like, each of the um, each of the types of things, like there's a, what they call a, a flip-flop and a, a combiner, and if you go and try and analyze it for a little bit, you, you realize that 
the flip-flop is essentially slowing things down and becoming and combined with the counter it ends up being uh, the uh, combiner it ends up being essentially a counter and so if you look at the graph eventually you'll probably be able to figure out some sort of subgraph that it will cycle at a particular amount of time but it was really annoying figuring out or trying to figure out like how long will this it take for this subgraph to cycle which other sub sub parts are dependent on this part and uh yeah it was a mess and i have a screenshot that i will post yeah i think you had you would have had to do something with the like maybe we can attach this but okay there we go so that is my i believe data i used mermaid in order to create this graph but you can see over in ho- <laughs> the podcast probably not the best format for display for talking about a graph but on the on <laughs> on the left hand side you, there is a node that is attached to a whole bunch of other nodes uh and you can see how it ends up being like a little a tree and uh, if you thought about it enough you could probably figure out how high that node on the left is supposed to count be- before it triggers one of the other things that it's pointing to um, and you can see how there's like mm. all these little subsections of graph. And now we definitely need to find a way to attach images to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're I, I did not try graphing the results, but looking at your graph and, and hearing what you described, I, I can see now how you would get to the solution. It's exactly what you said, right? Where you you're like, OK. I have to activate this one. In order to activate this, I have to press the button 273 right. times because it has to go through this other graph. Okay, that one has to be on. I have to get this one on. I have to push it another, you know, I have to push it four times for that one to be on. Oh, but every, but if you press it uh, four times 273, they both turn off. Oh, no. So now I got to run it again, right? Like there's some some number of rules where you could say, okay, yeah. it's basically cycles, it's- right? Where how it's, many cycles? It's but cycles, it, but, it's more but they're <laughs> offset from each other, and they interact in a yeah, exactly. non. You can't make an assumption about like how the cycles are going to in, impact each other, essentially. Um, and since yeah. it's difficult to make a hard determination about that, um, I would just need to go and start from the broadcaster and try and find the first cycle and try and empirically figure out. Um, when it would repeat, and I'm not sure if there... I, I'm sure there is a way to do all of this automatically, but I am not sure what it would be, and so my approach would essentially be have to be to start from the ones that are connected directly to Broadcaster and try and solve uh, when they cycle and move outward from there. Yeah, I think having a, a, a set of cycles is, is probably the right answer to that. Um, the other thing I had been considering, and I just never got there, because I just let this run overnight, um, <laughs> and it never finished. So then I let it run over a, a day as well, yeah. and it still never finished. Um, <laughs> I did I did the same thing, and I'm like, uh, I'm I think, pretty I, sure I think this is point, not going to run uh, finish. I'm pretty sure I need to do some sort of analysis. Yeah. I think I blew through <laughs> my stack as well, and like, I was like, okay, you've now nested too deep. And I'm like, all right, I, this requires rewriting, and I just didn't have time. Um, the other thing I'd consider was starting um, at the end and trying yeah. to work backwards and see if, like, okay. Uh, but that would have required some, like, me analysis. Mm-hmm. Like, I would have had to go look through it, and I didn't have time for that. So, <laughs> didn't do it. The closer you get to Christmas, the less time I have. Um, 
Uh, this happens every year. It's like the problems get harder and my time gets smaller. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I think Richard made a good point uh, at some point where he was like, yeah, the, the really hard ones should be like maybe like this should be right on the edge of the difficulty if if not maybe a day or two before and then there should be kind of a downward sloping thing because yeah it's yeah yeah like a bell curve i would like yeah. to see like maybe yeah. a, a right a right shifted bell curve just a little just bit a little, yeah yeah like it's okay for but like i would love it to drop off into like yeah you can do 24 and 25 no problem Right, just like you do day one. Exactly. Two, no yeah, it should be a, a kind of a reward after getting through all of it. Um, but, you know, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We haven't quite got to those days. <laughs> I don't even know if they were that hard. But I'm going to assume they were. Um, so, that's day, so that's day 20. Day 21 is step counter, uh, where you're trying to... It, it's, it's so funny how... so And I don't, I don't recall the previous years being like this, where so many of the puzzles seem like they're not necessarily directly related to what you're trying to do it's more like so you're gonna go do this but you gotta but you got some time to kill yeah so go walk around a garden so so let's do some stuff yeah so basically there's an elf who wants to get his steps in for the day and so you're trying to you have another you have another grid of dots and hashes and you're trying to essentially help him get the most steps uh, I guess in depending on which directions you go, uh, because you can go, you know, it, you can't go into a rock, so you have to navigate through rocks, um, and you're you're trying to figure out like the uh, let's see what is the yeah how many garden plots could the elf reach in exactly X number of steps, given a map of rocks in a garden, um, and I think the only note I put <laughs> yeah this one seems like it's going to involve an algorithm that I do not know so yeah and I'm sure. If I knew that algorithm, I would know how to approach this, but maybe it's harder than that. I don't know. You guys tell me. I did not do this one. I was on a boat all day and never never had a chance to even look at it beyond reading the description. All right, Richard, save so us. So for, for part one, it actually wasn't too bad. Um, all you had to do is essentially start from the start, starting spot, and uh, they wanted to know how many different places they could get to in that number of steps, and I believe their initial amount is 64. So... It um, it goes and radiates outward from his initial spot, but it also alternates um, because you could go back to where you were. And so each individual node sort of turns on and off uh, each opposite step once you've gotten to that node. And um, part one was very doable just by sort of simulating it, like walk uh, – uh, these are the places he could have walked in step one. These are the places he could have walked to in step two by having them added to the queue, etc. Um, part two, on the other hand, that was a mess. That one was, oh, we, we're not taking 64 steps. He, this was him realizing that his favorite numbers are both perfect squares and perfect cubes, not, not his step counter. The actual <laughs> number is, um, let's see, 26,501,365 steps. How many grid places can you get to based off of this map on that? Oh, and by the way, it tiles infinitely in every direction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course it does. So then you don't even necessarily have a uh, boundary. Yeah. Like so you, cycles. It's, to, yeah. So because of the way that... It, 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 so if you start to simulate it, it 
it ends up basically looking like a flashing diamond with some pieces missing. Um, and so you can get an upper bound of like how many places they can get to um, because you know that once you get to a place that it's going to alternate on and off from then on ever. And so you don't need to think about it after you've calculated it once. Even in, even whole tiles, you don't need to calculate more than once. Um, but the problem was that since the, the way that it's radiating, I couldn't even calculate what the perimeter would be at that many steps. Like, I... Um, just going around the perimeter and assuming that everything else you know on the inside that you know at that step number um, was too much processing, and so I, I this is the only one. This is I think the only problem where I actually am not sure what I need to do to solve it, um, because all of my previous approaches to it just took too much time. Even the ones where I was eliminating whole sloths of tiles or only considering the border any of it like i'm i'm pretty sure you have to go and determine like where on the grid the diagonal line is and then figure out which of the and find find some sort of cycle that intersects any of the places on the map uh in that diagonal for the for the grid and subtract out things in the middle and i i just was not able to figure out what it was <laughs> wow Day twenty one, folks. That sounds, uh, it's uh, it's complicated. It's getting real for everybody. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is this. I think was the hardest problem for me f- of the entire set this year. Wow. Oh wow. Okay. Well, it looks like day twenty two. Uh, you came back strong though. So why don't you? Oh yeah, this is the the Tetris falling blocks one. I saw so many cool looking visualizations. <laughs> three dimensional yeah, Tetris, three, Tetris falling blocks. I know, blocks. and I saw so many cool visualizations. I'm like, oh god, I wish I had. I wish this would have been day ten or something, so I would have even like had the the chutzpah to even start thinking about it. Um, even so, though, like I don't think I would have been able to get to the cool visualization, but I love just looking at them. Yeah, this one was fun. I, I like this one, especially because it gave me an opportunity to like make a visualization, which I will now put into the chat. <laughs> Excellent. It's always nice to have something to look at that isn't just you know text. I did not like this one, and it's because of the three dimensionality of it. I have uh, uh, I can't visualize things in the first place, and then I can't. So I, I could usually like sketch it out or draw it or print out a two-dimensional grid. But this one, you had to build things three-dimensionally. And I couldn't even wrap my head around how exactly to do that. Like it explained it, but I, I couldn't map the edges on top of each other the way that it wanted me to. Uh, I, oh, that's a very pretty I, picture. I mean, Richard, is this like – like I feel like on day 22, with three-dimensional stuff like this, having – uh, a visualization tool that you can program and show stuff like you're putting in the the chat right now. I, I'm not saying it's required to solve it, but like it seems right on the edge of like how how to even begin thinking about this uh, without being able to see something like this. Like it, just thinking about this in terms of code and text seems too big of a of a job to surmount but i don't know do you feel differently i definitely agree that at least for me i i need the visualizations or i will get lost trying to figure out what i'm doing wrong 
Um, okay. So that the the general idea is like you have all of these blocks and they're made of sand, and you need to figure out which one can which ones can be safely disintegrated without affecting like the other ones. And so in the images I have, like it starts off with they're all in the air. And so the first thing that happens is they all fall to the ground, which is what the second image that I sent you looks like. And from there you need to be, you need to determine which blocks you can remove without anything bad happening or without the rest of it, without anything else falling. And so if a block is supported by any other block, then it, it won't go away. So, like, if you have two blocks supporting one block, you can remove one of those blocks that's supporting the other block, and the other block will be fine. So, due to magical properties that they list, you do not need to actually have, like, the torque and everything be correct. If it, if, if it is touching another block, it will be supported. They're all super glued, effectively. Okay. And um, so, part one, you are essentially supposed to go through and add up all of the blocks that can be removed without affecting any other blocks. And um, those two images are what the sample data looks like. And mm-hmm. here, oh, that, that is what the my actual oh data looks like when it um, after it has fallen down. Before it fall, fell down, it looked like that. So it's basically Jenga plus Tetris. Yeah, so it's, it's like a Jenga yeah. Tetris thing. Because it, it sounds like you're saying like if all of if these are the blocks you have and they all fall down, which ones can you like Jenga pull out without the whole thing toppling? But I'm I'm a little confused without without by, anything toppling. So, so if if it is supported um, by anything after you remove that block. Um, then it is safe to remove. If, if everything above it is supported while you re- remove that block, then it is safe to remove that block. Well, so so my question is, uh, picture two and three, um, you, you, have, you have colors in the second one and in the third one. The third one has like f- uh, one, two, three, four, or five blocks that are white, and then the other ones are kind of shades of green. Are the shades of green one the ones that you can so remove, or the, the white, white ones? ones are the ones that you can remove without anything else having a problem? I believe the first one with the white ones was oh. when I was debugging things. Okay. So 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 basically, you should be able to remove those, and nothing bad happens. That is correct. Which I'm not. No, nothing. Nothing else will what have. What is to fall. bad? So so nothing else falls essentially. As long as every piece is supported by at least one other piece. Yes. Nothing. But bad I mean, has if happened. you pull, if you pull block. Three, four, five, and six, which are which is the kind of U shape one, the the moss green one, would that not fall or is that okay? So if you you are only pulling one block at a time, so any oh. so it, it doesn't matter. You, you're only you're only exploring one level deep into this into the pulling out of stuff. I see. Okay. Yeah, and so let's see for part one. Yeah, I don't know how you would figure this out in ju- well, I mean, without the visualization you said like it, it like I said you don't have to worry about the real world physics. It's literally just is this block touching another block? That seems doable in just code without looking at it. It it is. Like that that concept. However, it helps a lot to see it. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what's part 2? What what's the twist on that? Cuz that already 
So you have well, to add well, physics yeah. now. So for for part one, I had kept track of like what blocks are supported by other blocks, and so I went up a level and then essentially removed things. And if nothing happened, then I didn't count it. For part two, the 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 twist is. Well, this is way too... Disintegrating things in a safe way is way too slow. We need to find the maximum damage. So for each block, how many blocks will fall if you remove that block? So you take the bottom one out well, and they yeah, all fall. Um, if there is only a single bottom one, which is not the case. It, it is on the sample data, but it is not in your actual data. Um, however, in mm. addition to that... So in the one that I uploaded Jeez. is... You have to go through all of the blocks and determine what will fall for each of them. So you have to add up all of how many will fall oh. for them. Um, not right because this one fell, which caused that one to fall, and since that one fell, it's no longer supporting. Yeah, things, and then but, that one. But falls. that seems like if you actually tried to calculate that, you know, brute force wise, that would never work. Like, there's got to be some pattern. Um, there is some sort of there is a little bit of dynamic programming involved. Um, so my mm-hmm. first approach for this, um, for, for finding how many will fall for a particular one, was to start from the bottom and then calculate how many bricks would fall if you removed that one by going up the tree. Um, um, be, because sometimes like it would branch out, and um, so some, would, some on the left would fall... Some, uh, but it would still be supported because it connected back up later. And so th- that one would actually n- not fall. But sometimes it, one brick below would be supporting both of the ones that are supporting a one above that. Um, so you did actually have to uh, keep track of, like, if it is supported uh, by this one, if it is supported, if all of the ones that are supporting this block uh, are also supported by this one that is below it then the then they are counted in the set for the one below it but if 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 that mm-hmm. block is supported by one that is supported by one below it and also one that is not supported by one below it then that block would not fall working up the tree that way however i kept yeah. on running into like my answer was like slightly off of um what i ended up getting uh, as my final answer, and I just kept on running into problems there, and so I took the opposite approach eventually. Um, let's see, twenty-two, where um, this looks fun enough to even just try to get the visualization. Honestly, even if I don't solve the, the problem, <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately, yeah, and I'm pretty sure this is the one where Richard actually posted uh, code yeah. uh, for it because because this is the one I was like, I can't even start this one because yeah. i can't i can't imagine it, it in it's my your head. code for that 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 cad yeah it's, it's the code that i use to okay. generate the open scad code nice okay yeah i want to i'll look at that that looks awesome yeah so i eventually went ah uh, yeah i i made a uh get all needs function um where uh i essentially assumed the the opposite so like uh instead of figuring out uh, all of the things that are supported by a particular block, I took, I went, started from the top and found out everything that that block at the top needs in order to uh, stay where it is. Mm. So um, I, w- this was done essentially by trying to find a path 
from that block down to the base of the tower by uh, by incrementally removing every single block. And I would, of course, um, I, I cached like the the subsets of that so it would not take forever to run. Um, but yeah, the basic idea is for each block, remove one of the other blocks in your tower, see if you can still find a path from the your current block to the bottom. I guess I did it. I, I, I guess I still did start from the bottom and work my way up. But um, wow, yeah, this feels like where I would have I would have wanted to start yeah, at the top. I, I, I think for this one, because I figure you start at the top. You're like, okay, I can make this block fall by removing this one block down here. Uh, yeah, let's see. Oh no, I started at the bottom because my caching worked better that way. Um, so. Yeah, I, I, because sense. the things that are at the bottom, the, a subset of things above them would be that block that you just removed, and so you can you can cache that uh, subset that way. But yeah, it just the original finding everything supported. I felt like I I could uh, what I have in the chat is like a debug post part of that where I'm like, what is what is supposed to not be falling or falling that is not currently <laughs> that is wrong about this picture. And I was unable to figure it out and like, okay, I'm just going to approach this completely differently and go in the opposite direction and make it a pathfinding problem. Mm-hmm. So that was that one. They do like their pathfinding problems. Yes, in, they do. Uh, Advent of code. <laughs> uh, did we even talk about part two? That was part two. Oh no. Yeah. That, that was part two. Right. That yeah. That was part very two. cool. Wow. Uh, so speaking of pathfinding algorithms, uh, day 23 is <laughs> called A Long Walk, and uh, it's one of those ones where it's like uh, irrelevant to the overall solution of the of getting the snow to fall, uh, which was the big problem for the year. It's like, hey, you got to wait, so go on a walk. And uh, here's here's a maze, basically, that you can walk through, and it's got some slopes, and if you go down a slope, you can't get back up. So, um, without stepping on the same tile twice, what's the longest hike you can take? Yeah. Uh, I did not attempt this one because, again, time. Uh, so, Richard? I mean, normally you are trying to find the shortest path to something, and then this particular one is find the longest path to something, which is more annoying. Um, I guess it makes it sort of similar <laughs> to the traveling salesman pro- problem. Exactly, yeah. I I just put in my visualization here. Um, so I did recognize that um, most of it is of where you're going, you don't have any choice of where you're going. You're just following through a maze. And um, if you do hit an arrow, then that means that any, anything before the arrow had to have been going in the direction of the arrow. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Combine those things combined essentially with a with 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 the general uh, search algorithm. Uh, I was able to find what what the longest one was, and so the before I had it divided into like okay, you have to go this direction for this node. Um, I did run into some problems where it would take try to take these. Uh, when I was finding the longest path, it would not. It would go backward along a direction that it could not actually have gone um, because of the direction arrows, and uh, that messed up my uh, total longest path thing. But after I put that in and prevented it from going a direction that it was not actually allowed to go based off of the arrow, 
um, like following it all backwards to the previous node selection, um, th then it all just worked fine. Part two is more annoying, even though you'd think that it would be less annoying. So part two is, oh, actually, you can get up those slopes. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Just, just remove all of the directional stuff. So then you need to find the longest path in the maze, period, essentially. Which seems Which like, seems it, would like it would be easier. easier, but I kept getting the wrong answer. <laughs> so it is apparently not. Um, and when I don't get the wrong answer, it takes forever to run. Um, and what I'm pretty sure I need to do, um, I just never did it, was instead of having all of the individual nodes, is I, I needed to just have the selection the places where you can uh, choose a direction, not not all of them, and then essentially have a cost that is going between the nodes and then maximize that cost in like a regular graph instead of the grid kind of thing. Yeah, when I when I was initially reading this, that was more or less the the idea I had on how to solve part one was to do what you just described. Yeah. Um, because I figured walking through every possibility wasn't going to give me an answer uh, in a reasonable amount of Which time. Which is true, and <laughs> as long as you uh, don't mark the directions, um, and yeah, I had I, I had actually yeah. considered that for part one as well. Essentially, having uh, a directed graph and um, having a cost to go between the nodes, but um, this way I got to draw a pretty picture. <laughs> well, that's and that's always, always fun. worth it. I, I think. Yeah, even even if I don't get the the answer, just having uh, anything visual is nice. Um, speaking of which, day twenty four, which my only note is, uh, and I'm sure this was very tongue in cheek by Eric Wastel, twenty four one says to quote ignore the z axis, uh, which guarantees that twenty four two requires you to pay attention to the z axis. Uh huh. I'm gonna assume I'm gonna assume that was true, and uh, yeah. So just to quickly summarize this one, uh, the snowmaking process has started up because we are on day 24. We're on Christmas Eve, uh, but instead of forming snow, it's making hail, and so now you're getting a bunch of uh, positions and velocities of um, the hail, and they want you to find out uh, where they uh, intersect. Uh, but it, it explicitly says to forget about the z-axis. So I'm just, so I, I yeah I didn't get a chance to work on this one. W were were you able to come up with a cool visualization for this one, both part one and part two, Richard? Sadly, I did not make a visualization for this oh, one. It would have been really I want more good pictures too. Yeah. Um, especially because like the way I would have done it would be you have the snowflakes and you have the tra their trajectory, or I guess their hail balls. Um, or whatever hailstones, hailstones yes. and you put in their trajectories. So you have, you have the, your, the input is the positions and velocities of each of these balls. And they're not, um, affected by gravity, I assume due to magic. And, um, mm -hmm. you need to go and find where for each of the, for part one, you need to find out where each of the paths would intersect. And that would be a fun line to draw and have like a fade and everything like that. But I did not do that. Um, I just used okay. math to solve for the intersection of two lines and I derived the formula for that and then essentially just plugged it in and solved it. 
um, for for where those. It yeah, seemed pretty mathy. It was it was just math. Okay, but part two. So part two was like okay again. This is taking too long. You need to take a stone, and there exists a position where if you stand at this position and you throw the stone at this particular velocity, you will hit every single hail ball and destroy them. What? Uh, wait, wait, huh? <laughs> it's like, it's, they're basically, find the line that every uh, hailstone would move would be on yes, at a given so, but time. but you don't know what time but, this is yeah. going to be. Right, that's uh, the problem. So you don't, wow. so the things that you do not okay. know, you do not know the XYZ coordinates of where you're supposed to stand. You do not know the mm-hmm. XYZ velocities of this thing that you're supposed to throw. And you do not know when it, it is going to intersect each of the hail balls. But you do know that when it does intersect them, it does. And it does, and that the velocity of your hail ball does not change at any point during this. And... This is another one of the ones where it felt like it should have been... Okay, so my first mistake was that when I was reading the instructions, they gave, uh, they said, um, we know that it will intersect the first one at time one. And I thought this was an additional constraint at first, um, where it that one of the constraints was when you throw your stone or whatever that at time one it will hit the the first hail ball and so i derived a whole bunch of equations and that and where one of them one of or i guess three of them were special because x y and z so three equations um in that uh it was a a known time is equal to one but when i plugged this into my actual data it did not work and then i reread i'm like oh I don't know any of the times. This is not a constraint. It's just saying you throw the ball no. at time one? Not that it will uh, hit it does, something at no, time No, no, no. In, in the example that they gave, it hit the first one at time one. Oh. And I thought mm. that was a... So you don't even know when you're throwing the ball. Well, you're throwing the, the ball, ball at time... You're throwing the ball at Yeah, you're throwing the ball at time zero, somewhere. but you don't know when the first intersection is. Okay. Right. Yeah, so I imagine what you'd have to do for this one would be something like... Uh, there should be an upper bound because at some point it would be impossible for, for two, uh, like they would pass each other and they were never going to come back or be in a line that you could ever reach from the ground. Like, I feel like for every pair, uh, of, I guess you're always going to go up, right? So you'd be, you'd be going up through Z. So you could look for every Z above a certain point. If it had moved past ones below it, then you'd be past the time that you could do so, it? I don't know. <laughs> this ended up being finding a system of equations. Mm. And oh, wow. so I don't know if you saw my spoiler notes. I guess you probably didn't. But like for part for nope. part one, I think even, I was like, ooh, I wonder if I can break out my uh, the code I wrote in college where I took a matrix and solved a system of n linear equations and n unknowns and uh, uh, using uh, row reduction. And for part two, this pops up. I'm like, oh, I can break out this code. <laughs> so like linear algebra type stuff? I Naturally. did not enjoy that class. That was one of the more difficult math classes for me. <laughs> and so 
my problem was finding the stupid n linear equations because everything was dependent on both time and your velocity. So there was a multiplication there. So I ended up finding, I, I, I so I what I did instead was I assumed that uh, I, I basically grouped the multiplication of those two variables into a single variable. And then I found like 12 equations that could be used based off of um, the intersection of T1, T2, and T3 um, that could be used to, uh, to solve that. And um, then I broke out my old n linear equations and n unknowns code and found out that I had not optimized it su- su- uh, enough <laughs> to actually use it directly. Oh, man. Advent of code. So I, I end up going and um, cheating a little bit and using a Python library called um, SymPy, which can do this solve for you. Um, because I, while I was while I was running my own uh, determinant and uh, row reduction in the background, I'm like, well, I have I have a choice here. I can either optimize my code, or I can see if my approach even works at all by using this Python matrix uh, solving code that someone else wrote. And so I plugged it in. And this is actually how I found out that the my assumption about the t equals one was wrong because I'm like I plugged it in the, my equations in and it solved it perfectly for the sample code and then I put in my code and it did not work um, and so I then had to go and make it more generic uh, where none of the times are known and um, I have nine equations I think that are required um, here I'll make a screenshot of what my original oh my original 15 equations actually and then the ones that are commented out are the ones that were not actually necessary see when i look at things like this this is where i know that it gets into the type of programming i don't enjoy doing which is where i have to go and rely on uh outside libraries i don't like doing that um i i don't begrudge anyone from doing it but i don't enjoy programming where i have to go learn someone else's api uh, it's like my least favorite part. I like writing crap from scratch. Um, and that's why I think I like the early days in the advent of code. Cause I can almost always do that. And the later days almost always require that I have something like, like SimPy or something in my back pocket that I can break out or it's going to take forever. Yeah. I, I heavily resisted this, but like my code was taking too long to run and I yeah. really did not feel like going and optimizing it. Um, and because I didn't even know if my equations were going to be right at the time. And it turns out they were right, but um, I didn't know that. And I didn't want to go and spend a whole bunch of time optimizing my code to only to, to find out that it didn't work at all. Exactly. Yeah. So there's 15 equations here. There's 15. Only the ones that are commented out, commented out are not necessary because I did like a subtraction ah. in order to try and get enough equations by because you have like see how there's the uh, vx zero times whatever uh, t three and whatnot yeah. and both of those are unknowns and so I needed to get 15 equations uh, for my for my linear solver to work but since their um, solver does not necessarily solve a matrix I guess um, it worked with just nine 
which is the total number of uh, unknowns. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I would not not have gotten that. No, I I would not have even known to to try to do that. So this is definitely above my pay grade, but uh, awesome. I think I could probably pull off part one. I, I don't think I have any chance of pulling off part two without as you, you know basically doing what you did. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, among other things, don't even have a clue where my linear algebra uh, code <laughs> coding it, it exists. Yeah, I probably I, have a, a tar file somewhere that has it in it. Yeah, I was like super excited. Like I, I like <laughs> I wrote this for fun while I was taking linear algebra to to like r- get row reduction into my brain, and I finally got to actually use it for something, and it was too slow. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas. That's finally. all I put. Yeah. For oh. for day twenty five, snowverload. Um, I, yeah, I, I did not try this one either. Um, and I know that part one is the only part one because part two is just, uh, it isn't part two, like, make sure you have, yeah, 50 it's stars. just, it's, it's the one gimme mm-hmm. that they give you at the end. So, uh, so what, what is the, uh, what, what is this one all about Richard and, uh, how, how did you go about solving it? So oh, another pretty picture. This one. Yeah. I, I graphed this one too. And again, using, um, mermaid. So, this one is you have a whole bunch of electronics that are hooked up and it's too many of them because it is it is trying to power too many things and you need to figure out a, how to you only have time to cut and there, there's basically all these electronics that are all connected to each other and uh, you need to be able to cut three wires and partition it into two groups so you have enough power to save Christmas. I feel like and so it's I feel like I've seen that puzzle on Reddit in a non-advent of code context. <laughs> yeah, I suspect that this is probably a very interview questiony. Mm-hmm. It was this is actually probably the hardest day 25 puzzle that I have experienced with advent of oh, code. Wow. Um and I don't know that I would have necessarily solved it if I had not visualized it first. The one that I put in is the sample data graph. I don't know if I have the graph. I think that when I tried to graph my actual input that it broke the visualizer. Yeah, it definitely broke the visualizer. It means that there are so many nodes that it just froze when I plugged it into the mermaid visualizer. It is it is a very long list. Very, very long list. And so... For the solution, um, I did it very similarly to how I did the blocks falling thing in that I took a particular node and I tried to get to um, another place in the uh, on the graph. And um, I'm looking at your diagram and I'm reading the the sample and saying like okay can i follow what they're saying and i'm like nope <laughs> <laughs> like i think i would need to physically have like think i think i would need actual physical things i could touch oh now I, okay, now I remember what i did <laughs> so i i realized that when you are trying to cut three paths um when you're trying to cut three connections between 
in order to make a partition, that means that uh, you have for a particular node uh, that you're considering that there will be, if it is in the same partition as your current node, there will be at least four paths to that node um, where if you remove any point or any node on that path, um, essentially you go through and um, you try and find the number of unique paths to a second node. So you, you take the, the first node and say there are um, five completely unique paths. So like none of the nodes overlap because if any of the nodes uh, overlap, that means that you could uh, cut one of them and, and still have that path essentially. So all of the nodes for each path need to be completely unique. And if there are more than four totally unique paths between one node and another, you know that that node is in the same group as the node that you are considering. And if you uh, have uh, fewer than three paths, that means that it is in the other side of the partition. And since all you need to do is find out how many nodes are each in each partition, uh, you can take one node and for that node find how many paths there are to every single other node and um, if there's more than four if there's four or more it's with the current one and if there's fewer than four it's with the other with the other set and um, you don't even need to figure out which no which ones that you need to cut um, this just gives you your sets and then you're okay so those kind of problems are always the ones I, I struggle with where it's you don't actually need to find the answer you don't actually need to solve the problem to get the answer. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I don't like those ones. Because I want to, I'm like, I want to know what three wires I need to cut. Um, but in order to do these kind of things... It's actually fairly straightforward to figure out which three wires you need to cut after you've figured out what the partitions are. So, But but that, that is a good point, Matt, that uh, uh, at least with advent of code or word problems in general, like it is important to... Well, I guess it's it's mainly important to realize what you actually need to find out if you're competing while it's live. Cause that's the kind of thing that you have to know if you want to like beat other people, or at least do this in the allotted time, unless you're just doing it for fun afterwards. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I I'm with you. I just like, once I start getting into the problem, I just want to figure out all the stuff as much as I can. <laughs> and it's hard to, it's hard to forget about the stuff that is, there's a lot, there's always a lot of distractors, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, cool. Well, yep. Merry Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Merry Christmas. We did it, guys. We got all the way through. We got through all of Advent Co. So, uh, have you guys gone back to any of the previous years since? Um, I did a little of, I think it was 2019 at one point in time, or maybe mm -hmm. 2015. Um, but I haven't I haven't gone through with any, any sort of, like, uh, momentum yeah. <laughs> at all. It's 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 definitely hard to do that. Although, it it is kind of nice to just do the first like week or so of the other years because they are generally easier. Um, I mean, I'm I'm noticing the same kind of like where the first third of it is is largely like one dimensional uh, input kind of stuff where you just have like strings that you're parsing, and then it, it always gets into some kind of grid two uh, D, and then 
obviously, I mean, not every problem, but you know, the, that's the, the last third is when they start throwing in the three dimensional stuff. So that seems to be a pattern uh, in all the years, which is just kind of interesting. Um, and I definitely like always drop off in the middle of the two dimensional. Uh, but it, but it, if for nothing else, this year has definitely gotten me to think more about having libraries ready to go. Like Richard has talked about having like a grid library or a graphing library that you can just plug this stuff into because they do follow these patterns of, you know, you, you're going to have to be able to parse a string or a list of strings. You're going to have to deal with a grid two-dimensional XY, and then occasionally you're going to have to deal with the XYZ three-dimensional, um, like just looking at these visualizations that Richard has, like uh, even for the easier problems, it would be nice if I had a system set up where I could just plug the input in and get pretty graphs that help you think about this in a non serial code kind of way. Um, but I've just, it was only this year that I really started like trying to think about that. And I think that's something that I can do in the meantime until t- advent of code 2024 is, because now that I know, I've done several of these years, now I know what to expect more. It's not a, a surprise. I know the kinds of things I'm going to need in my tool, in my arsenal, in my advent of code arsenal. Like there's, you know, I, I'm I'm happy that it's like that because it does make it a little easier each year if you're already ready with that stuff rather than writing it on the fly every single time. Agreed. Maybe, maybe yeah, that's why I, they made it harder. They, they knew you were preparing. <laughs> yeah. I, I've switched languages uh, a couple of times, so I haven't done that. Like I did the first year I did this, it was in Python. Last year it was in TypeScript, and then I went back to Python again this year. Yeah. I think if I just commit to sticking with one language, then I can start to build out those kind of libraries. Because I did this year in Python. I have some visualization libraries. I have some position libraries and other things that that would be useful to carry forward. So yeah, I could see fleshing that out. And I definitely need a... a a graph-based one. I have a grid-based one. I need a graph-based mm-hmm. one. Did, yeah, well, so, so you, you did this in Python as well, Richard? Yeah, I did it in Python also. And and you have a custom uh, visualization graphing library that you can just uh, pipe stuff to? Sort of. Um, I have, like, a general interface for drawing what are basically cubes or blocks and most things can be constructed from these cubes or blocks and I can paste text onto it and then it sends it over to whatever renderer I'm going to use. One year I used uh, Pygame and um, mostly I've used um, OpenSCAD just because I can fly around it in their own visualizer without me having to write the code for a camera and whatnot. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned Mermaid multiple times, and, and uh, uh, Matt has mentioned Mermaid as well. I've heard of that tool, but I've never used it, and I feel like it uh, it would be useful to understand how that works as well. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. It, it will just build out graphs for you from fairly s- simple uh, text statements. I, I use it a lot um, when I'm building, like, readme files. Um, I'll include, like, a little mini architecture diagram uh, as a Mermaid code block basically nice well we got through all the days we got through all of advent of code 2023 uh i thank you richard very much for being on our podcast and sharing your insight and your your pretty pictures and visualizations um i think it has enriched our discussion uh, especially for the the last third of it since uh you were able to get through more of them than we were so thank you very much for that 
Yeah, it was super great. Uh, really a lot of fun. That wraps up this episode of Hacking the Grebson. Once again, thanks Matt and Richard for going through the Advent of Code gauntlet again. Um, I look forward to next year. Hopefully it will be a little less tough, but, you know, I mean, maybe that'll make it less interesting. Who knows? Um, but it's always interesting every year. I mean, even the previous years I've tried uh, have their own interesting quirks and uh you know, things that they're trying to uh, get you to figure out. So, and that, yeah, that, that'll be it. If, if you want to listen to more of our discussions, we have previous discussions about previous advents of code on our website at hackingthegrepson.com. But until next time, we now return you to your regularly scheduled lives already in progress. 